As you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 3. And uh, we're on the verge of, of Christmas, and I, I wanted to make sure we were able to close out Romans chapter 3. As we began it last week, we noted that this is indeed, by all accounts, one of the greatest passages in all the Bible. Romans verse, chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. In this passage, as it comes to an end, Paul continues to provide for us gospel clarity. This is, in many ways, why we celebrate Christmas. It is because of the gospel, and it is because we understand with clarity the gospel of Jesus Christ. This, what Paul addresses here, is ultimately why we believe in Jesus. Because at Christmas, we're reminded that we could not save ourselves. We're reminded that our condition and our plight was so dire, was so desperate, that God himself had to take on flesh, enter into this world as a baby, live as a man, die as a man, rise as a man, all so that we might be saved and reconciled to God. We cannot save ourselves. This season reminds us that unto us a a Savior is born, as the Scriptures say, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This final section deals with two contrasting views of salvation. As Paul sums up his argument, he wants to contrast salvation by faith and salvation by works. And he wants us to see the utter impossibility of a works-based righteousness and the utter necessity of a faith-based righteousness. I want to read for us. We'll begin at verse 27. As we finish off this chapter, Paul writes these words, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. I want to draw out this contrast between faith and works, first by focusing on works, and I'm going to frame it like this, Uh, here's why works don't work. Here's why works don't work to accomplish your salvation or mine. The first reason that we see is this, it's because they can't establish your boasting. They cannot provide you any legitimate grounds for boasting before God. What is boasting? Well, the dictionary defines boasting like this, excessive pride and self-satisfaction about one's achievements, possessions, or abilities. You can see, just even in this definition, that boasting is deeply related to pride. The two things cannot be separated or pulled apart. It's interesting, in the Jewish world, there were many that believed in a salvation by works. They believed that through their works, they could be good enough to be made right with God. 
And the effect that this would have had, if you stand before God on the basis of your own works, and you believe they would somehow justify you, that would give you a reason to boast. You could stand before God at the very end of your life and say, God, look at what I've done. Look at how good I've been. Look at how righteous I am on my own. Paul's already addressed this idea of a works-based righteousness in the first few chapters. We've looked at that in depth. And the Jews, for sure, believed they had a reason to boast. All the way back in chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says this, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, the Jewish people were so proud of their personal righteousness. Paul himself, prior to his own conversion, reflecting on his his own pre-conversion career in Judaism, listen to what he says about his own life. Here's how he viewed himself, and this was a typical assessment by a self-righteous Pharisee. He says this in Philippians 4, or excuse me, 3 verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. He's talking about his own works here. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, he says. Circumcised on the eighth day, as the Scriptures say you should be. Of the people of Israel, the covenant chosen people of God, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. He was studious in the law. He knew the law, and he believed he practiced the law to its fullest extent. Listen to this. Listen to how he defines his own self-righteousness. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That's how much I loved God. As to righteousness under the law. Listen to this. Listen to what Paul says. Blameless. Prior to Christ, he thought he was a pretty, pretty good guy. You see, it's not just the Jews who were prone to self-righteousness and pride and to believing that their works somehow got them anywhere with God. The Gentile world was also, as Paul defines in chapter 1, verse 30, insolent, haughty, and boastful. In fact, we know this to be true, don't we? All of humanity, all human beings are chronic boasters. We are by nature, by our sinful nature, a boastful people, a prideful people. Boasting is the language of our fallen self-centeredness. We simply love to boast. We love to be made much of. We hate to be thought little of. And we've looked at this in the past, but this idea of boasting and and bringing glory to our name is the very essence of what it means to de-God God. We take worship that is to be directed towards God, and we redirect it to someone or something other than God. I read a quote this week. Um, It went something like this. The self-made man is prone to boast in his creator. He's prone to worship his creator. Some of you still haven't caught that yet. The self-made man is prone to worship his creator. He thinks much of himself because he thinks he's made much of himself. Why do we do this? Why do we, we boast as human beings? I think there's a lot of reasons, but I think at its very heart, we boast because we, we are trying to find meaning. We're trying to establish value in our lives. We're trying to establish strength or confidence or acceptance. Boasting comes in all different kinds of forms, and, and we all know this to be true as well. 
There's lots of different kinds of boasting. There's the kind of the classic kinds of boasting. You have the show off, right? The person who just always wants to highlight their own abilities. They're always running out there. They love to be the, the center of it all. Check me out. But you got different forms of boasting. You got the, the, the humble brag, right? Some of us are experts at the humble brag. Yeah, you know, I, I really, I, yeah, I climbed Mount Everest once. It really wasn't that big of a deal. Anybody could do it. Oh, please, stop, stop. I don't, I don't need any applause. Nothing, please. You have the, the one-uppers. Some of us, again, are really, really good at that. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can't dare to let somebody else have the limelight the moment somebody says something. Oh, yeah, I've got something. i got something that you'll be really impressed with. And then you just got the classic kind of arrogant, I call it like the athletes, like the boxers, the sprinter. They, they legitimately believe they're the best person ever created by God. I'm the greatest. I'm the best. And it's this swagger, this, this arrogance about them. I will crush you. It's what we do with our favorite teams. We're, we're all a part of this, okay? None of us are excluded. We all rally around this, especially in the sports arena. We love our team. My team's better than your team. We're going to mop the floor with you. I'm going to paint my face and pay over, way too much money for overpriced hot dogs. We love to boast in ourselves. We love to boast in things you say, what's your point, Ian? My point is simply that. We all boast. But when you boast, you naturally set yourself up against God. And Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? He says, it is excluded. It is excluded. When you come face to face with God, you need to understand you have nothing to boast in. You see, what every human being is guilty of is setting yourself over God and setting yourself against God. That is the fundamental sin of humanity. And Thomas Watson, the, the Puritan writer, said this, there is not a more dangerous precipice than self-righteousness. The Bible says that our meaning, listen, and our value and our strength and our confidence is to come from no other place but God himself. He's the only one of worthy, who is worthy of such a place because he is the only one who holds that kind of supreme value. And by virtue of him possessing all worth and all value, he can then bestow that worth and value. And in boasting in ourselves or in some other created thing, we have essentially, again, de-godded God. We have sinned against God. We have thrown away His glory, and we all stand guilty and condemned before Him. We have the tendency, listen, listen, you need to hear this. We boast in things that are corruptible, meaning things that are susceptible to death. And I want you to consider what that means. Whatever we boast in will eventually die, and so then will all of the hopes and dreams and confidences that we attach to that thing. They all go away. So if you've put your hope and your trust and your joy and your satisfaction and your money and your possessions, or, or maybe it's your looks or your achievements, maybe it's... it's your relationships, maybe it's your kids or your spouse, you've, you've placed the weight of your hope in those things. That is your boast. Look what I have. Look at what I have attained. Look at my source of joy. I just want you to know, when those things fade away, so too will your hope and confidence. 
That's the problem, by the way, with, with Hallmark movies. Anybody, any, anybody admittedly a Hallmark movie fan in here? Come on, I, I know all you ladies in here are watching every single Hallmark movie, and some of you guys are right now are really ashamed and embarrassed to admit it too. But like, you've, seen, yeah, you've seen one Hallmark movie, you've seen them all, amen? It's, it's the same thing in every single one. The whole premise is that there's some, forgive me women, I, I didn't write the movies, okay? It's some lonely woman who is desperate to find some kind of relationship, and magically it's going to happen all before Christmas. This is the way it works, and it does. And we want, and, and, but, but what's interesting is you hear this. You hear this at weddings too, by the way. You see this all the time in Hollywood, but in these Hallmark movies, this person is longing for somebody to fill that void, somebody to put their hope in, and they look at this person, and they finally find them, and they say things like, you are my everything. You're my world. You hear that language? And, and, and we sit back and we watch these things and we're like, oh, isn't that so cute? They're, they're each other's world. They're their everything. And you're like, oh, isn't that so beautiful? That's not beautiful. That's horrible. That's horrible. If, if, if that is your world, think about this, listen. If that's your world, if that's your everything, what happens if that individual is taken away from you? What happens when that person hurts you? What happens when that person fails you, lets you down? What happens if that person leaves you? You know what happens? Your world crumbles. Everything is destroyed. Your life unravels because that is what you have been holding on to. That has been your boast, that thing. You see, apart from Christ, all the temporal joy you had with those things that you place your hope in will flee from you, and you will be under the wrath of God for eternity. And the point is this, that for those who have been justified by faith, boasting, Paul says, is altogether excluded. We have no other hope. We have no other source of justification. And he says here, by works of the, by the law, excuse me, of works, You notice how he says that there? By what kind of law? By a law of works? Here's what he's talking about. By the principle of works, by the principle that you could earn your righteousness before God, or by the law of faith, by the principle that you must gain faith, or excuse me, righteousness through faith. He says, no, it's but by the law of faith. And this strips away any sense of boasting. You see, if you could keep the law perfectly, you'd have a reason to boast before God. You could hold up your, your report card and you say, look, God, straight A's. But we all hold up our report card and God says, look, straight F's. And God doesn't hand out any participation ribbons. Well, at least you tried real hard. That's the point. That's the point. You can't try hard enough. You couldn't do enough. And since you can't, then those things can't establish your boasting before God. Since righteousness is by faith, you have no grounds whatsoever because you did nothing for it. That's why works don't work. Secondly, works don't work because they can't earn your acceptance. We think maybe in our boasting we'll have something to offer God, but deep down inside, we believe our works are going to earn us acceptance with God make us pleasing to God, somehow validate the fact that God should call us into a relationship with himself, like we are somehow worthy. 
verses 29 and 30, Paul says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The Jewish people were extremely conscious of their special covenant relationship with God in in which Gentiles did not share. It was to the Jews that God had entrusted His special revelation. Theirs too, Paul is going to soon write in Romans chapter 9, are are the adoption as sons, the divine glory, the covenant, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises, not to mention the, the patriarchs and the human ancestry of Jesus Christ Himself. But you see, their problem was they put their faith in these privileges instead of the God who gave them those privileges. We do this kind of thing all the time. Humanity does this all the time. The greatest lie in the world and the lie common to all false religions and cults is that by certain works of our own doing, we're able to make ourselves acceptable to God. The greatest error in that belief is its sheer impossibility. Because, as Paul has already said, by the works of the law, no man will be justified. By the works of the law, listen, we cannot gain favor or the forgiveness of God. But like I said, many of us actually live as if we can. Many of us practically operate as if we do earn God's acceptance. The checkbox-style Christianity, believing that if we go through the motions, if I do enough, if I give enough, if I read enough, if I pray enough, if I repent enough, then maybe God will love me more. Maybe I will be more acceptable to Him. Negatively speaking, we do this, and we see this thinking playing out when we live under the weight of guilt and shame in the Christian life. And many, listen, many of us live in this place right here, this place of overwhelming guilt and shame. We feel crushed by the weight of our sin, by our inability to live up to the standards of God. We feel the weight of our sin constantly, and we wallow in our shame. We walk around with our tail between our legs. We feel this. We, we live this out. And many of us live, listen, the Christian life, trying to prove our worth to God. And this is actually antithetical to the gospel itself. We try to to prove to God that we're worthy of His affection, that we're worthy of His acceptance. We beat ourselves up over our sin. We say things like, I can't forgive myself for this. We try to expunge the bad things in our life by really quickly trying to do a bunch of good things in our life. We live in fear that all of the bad things happening in our life are actually the result of all of our sin, like God is punishing us. And listen, without dismissing the the legitimate chastening and disciplining hand of God that the Scriptures speak of, many of us have wrongly embraced a works-righteousness approach to living the Christian life. 
we do affirm that God blesses obedience. We believe that's what the Scriptures teach, but let me just say this very clearly. That is not the same thing as earning God's acceptance. As a child of God, there is nothing you can do. Listen to this, listen. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more or accept you more. And that also means there's nothing you can do as a child of God to make God love you any less and accept you any less. See, why? Because you were never accepted by God on the basis of anything you did. Never. And you never will be. Praise God. Amen? That would be a big problem for all of us. This is why salvation is the same for everyone And that's what Paul is drawing our attention to in verse 29. You see, the Jews forgot that all of their privileges were not meant to exclude the Gentiles, but rather were intended by God to include them. Paul's going to address Abraham in chapter 4 of Romans. And what we know is this, that God promised Abraham way back in Genesis 12 and, and 15 that through his seed, through his lineage, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. God always intended salvation to come to all people the same way. That's why in verse 30, what Paul does here is he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And the logic of his thinking should not be missed here. He is saying simply this, listen, listen, there is only one God. That means there is only one way to this God. There's not one way for the Jews and one way for the Gentiles. There's not many paths that lead to the top of the mountain. This one God has determined one way, and that way is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is it. One of the things I love about the genealogy of Jesus, if you go back and read that in this Christmas season, Matthew chapter 1, one of the things you see is the inclusion of Gentiles in the family line of Jesus himself. And the Gentiles that are chosen there are not the ones that we would typically choose. They're not the ones who have all of the respectable uh, parts of their life, everything kind of put together. I love the focus on the women in particular, Rahab, the prostitute, Tamar, Tamar, Ruth, the Moabite. And so you hear Paul say these words, is not God the God of the Gentiles also? And we ought to definitively stand with Paul and say, yes, the Gentiles also. If the gospel of justification by faith alone excludes all boasting, it excludes all elitism and discrimination also. The call of the gospel is a universal call. The call of Jesus Christ to all people is this, come, come one, come all, come as you are, come and believe. Come and be saved, come and be transformed, come and be loved, come and be embraced, come and be accepted. What cannot be earned by you has been earned by another. And it has been graciously given to you as a gift. At the foot of the cross and through faith in Jesus, we are all on exactly the same level, sisters and brothers in Christ, eating at the same table. Finally, here's why works don't work. They can't elevate your Savior. It gives you a reason to boast, which means this, it actually diminishes your Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Paul concludes in verse 31, he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We get rid of the law. The law has an immense value, and I want to show you what he means here. First of all, let me just say this. Um, Your works, they may elevate you in your own eyes, and they may elevate you in the eyes of others, but they will never elevate you in God's eyes. We often live like this is our purpose in life, to receive glory from others and, and praise from others. And some of us even lived thinking that we're going to receive glory from God because of how good we've been. Like at the end of the day, when we stand before God, we're going to look at God and say, God, well, what's the final verdict? Like, how impressed are you with me? Some of us just live our lives believing that, you know, we're, we're God's gift to the church, like, look, look at me, God. How, how couldn't you be impressed with this? I mean, God is pretty impressive, right? Like, God, you, you need me. And God's like looking down from heaven at us, looking at us and going, man, what would I ever do without him? <laughs> Maybe it's helpful for a moment to remember what Paul says, that in the, the church of the living God, there are not many wise. There are not many noble. There's not many strong in fact, maybe just turn to the person beside you and just, just look in the eyes right now. Go ahead. This is a serious moment. Just look in the eyes. Don't look at me. Just say, you're not that impressive. <laughs> and, and, and then, <laughs> this is really important too, and say this too, and neither am I. <laughs> and if you're married to them especially, say this too, but I still love you. Mm-hmm. God doesn't need us, Amen. He doesn't need us. You see, this kind of thinking, this idea that we're somehow impressive before God is to misunderstand the ends or the purpose of which we were created. The Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I believe that's fundamentally true. You see, as image bearers, our supreme objective is to image him, our God, our King, our Savior, so that He and He alone might receive all of the praise, all of the honor, and all of the glory. But you see, in our works righteousness, we cannot do that. We cannot elevate God, our, our King, and our Savior. In fact, our feeble works, any sense of, of works righteousness, it actually diminishes the cross. It strips glory away from Jesus Christ. It devalues the cross. It empties the cross of its power and its meaning and its sufficiency. It is to say, if we could add anything to the gospel, if you could add anything to your faith, it is to say the cross is not enough. And that is arguably the most blasphemous statement anyone could make. cross is not deficient in any way, shape, or form. But our faith in Jesus does not diminish or do away with the law. That's what Paul is saying here. No, it actually establishes the law because the law elevates our Savior. That's what he's been preaching to us even throughout these first three chapters. Paul Paul seems to set the law and faith in opposition to each other here, to exalt faith at the expense of the law, and even to nullify the law altogether. So, so the, the Jews who would hear this or the Gentiles who would hear this saying, so Paul, what you're saying then is the law is of no value. We need to get rid of the law. The law is worthless, right, Paul? And Paul says emphatically, may it never be. Certainly not. 
The law actually establishes the gospel of Jesus Christ. It elevates Jesus, and so we dare not do away with the law. Now, notice that it's the law that does this, not our works, not the works of the law. So, what does the law do? Let me just remind you. The law declares God's holiness. The law declares God's wrath against all sin, and the law actually communicates God's divine love to humanity. The law showed God's desire to be in a right relationship with humanity who had broken that relationship by sin. It demonstrates God's determination to restore that relationship. So you see, rather than elevate human ability, the law destroys human ability. Instead, it draws our focus to the hope of divine accomplishment. Who would fulfill this law? Who does this law drive us to? Our works elevate us as Savior, not Jesus, which misses the entire point of the law. The gospel doesn't abolish the law, rather it fulfills the law. The law has met its accomplishment in Jesus. So if we simply dismiss the law, we diminish the glory of Jesus. Let me put it like this, without the law, we cannot fully understand who Jesus is and what he accomplished. Your works cannot elevate your Savior, but the law does. This is why works don't work, but let me just really quickly frame this the opposite way. You see, we need to quickly look at this, why grace works through faith, really quickly. Why grace works through faith. And here's what I mean by faith. Listen, we're not just talking about, our world loves to talk about faith. I have faith. I've got faith too. And it's just like, like having faith is some kind of a, a, a magic bullet that just saves you automatically. Your faith is only as valuable and good as the object you place your faith in. Here's why grace works through faith. First of all, it establishes your boast in the cross. When it comes to salvation, boasting is unthinkable. Everything is of God. All boasting is excluded except boasting in Christ. We are called to be a boastful people, but our boast is not in our works. It is in Jesus Christ. Boasting in Jesus, not self, is the characteristic activity of justified believers, and it will be for all eternity. It will forever be our boast. We will surround the throne of Jesus and forever boast in his saving work. We will forever declare, I could never do it, but you did it all, Jesus. Worthy are you, O Lamb. So let us join with Paul and say, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And like Paul, may we never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a call for humility. This is where all who are without Christ must begin. You must put down your pride and boasting and come empty-handed that you might receive the radical true righteousness that's offered in the gospel. Secondly, here's why grace works through faith, because it earns your acceptance at the cross. Again, we know this. God shows no partiality. We all come in salvation the same way. Nobody's more acceptable to God than any other. Not, not a Jew, not a Greek, not a slave, not a free, not a male or a female. All of us are on equal footing before God. There is no deserved status 
amongst God's people. There's no privileged class in God's kingdom. God accepts every one of us the same way on the basis of His own Son's life, death, and resurrection. That's what our faith is in. Jesus and His finished work alone. You see, the cross is where the wrath of God was satisfied. The cross is where the payment for sin was made. The cross is where your certificate of debt was nailed. The cross is where Jesus declared it is finished. As a result, God looks at all of us, listen, the same way. This is so important. Some of you in here who wrestle with with this weight of guilt and shame this morning, you need to hear this. This means this, that God doesn't see your past sin when He looks at you. As His child, He's not looking at you in all of your sin and all of your muck. He doesn't see you right now in your constant rebellion. He doesn't see you in your guilt and shame. He doesn't see you in your unworthiness. He sees His own beloved Son. He looks at you knowing everything you've ever done, and knowing everything you ever will do, and instead of seeing you in, in the, the, the rags, and the, even the, 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 you know, the, the filthy rags of your own self-righteousness that you try to offer to God, he looks at you, and what he sees not is this, this filthy, stained, wicked, rebellious individual. He strips that all off of you. He scrubs you perfectly clean, and then he takes the beautiful, righteous robe of his own son, and he lays it on your shoulders, and he puts the signet ring on your finger, and he says, you are my beloved. And he loves you with a steadfast, everlasting, eternal love. And that's what the cross screams to us. He sees in you the perfect life of his son. He sees in you the perfect obedience of his son. Jesus earned your acceptance at the cross, and he offers forgiveness and freedom to all as a gift to be received by faith. The greatest gift of all, Merry Christmas. Finally, it elevates your Savior through the cross. As far as salvation is concerned, the gospel does not replace the law because the law was never a means of salvation. The law was given to show humanity the perfect standards of God's righteousness and to show that those standards are impossible to meet in our own power. The purpose of the law was to drive us to faith in God. That perfect standard shows our inability to fulfill its demands, but Jesus comes and fulfills it perfectly. Christ's ability and accomplishment alone fulfills the law perfectly, including the very judgment that the law itself demands. The cross establishes the law and elevates your Savior. I quoted Galatians 4 last week, but I want to quote it again. It's so fitting at this time of the year. As we draw our hearts towards the Lord's Supper and thinking about the Christmas season, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is what Christmas is all about. So when we look at the cross, like we are this morning at the Lord's Supper, remember that the work of salvation and the work of Christ for us is finished. We worked nothing but sin. 
The only thing we've ever contributed to our salvation is the sin that's made it necessary. He worked and achieved perfect righteousness for us, which is why, listen, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We pause and we reflect and we repent of our sin before God, but we celebrate the gift of His Son. We look at His body broken for us. We look at His blood that is shed for us, and we remember in these moments that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we have received salvation. 